Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. Hello, everyone. My name is Jarrah Sastrawan. I'm the postgraduate representative for the Southeast Asia Centre. I'm also a PhD student here at the University of Sydney, and I'm here with a visiting scholar at the Southeast Asia Centre, Tom Hochevost from Leiden. And so I'd like to introduce Tom, briefly ask where you're from and what sort of research you're coming here to do. Thank you, Jara, for having me. I come from Leiden, which is a city in the Netherlands, and I would position my research at the intersection of language and history. You could call it historical linguistics, but the way that they uh, cross-pollinate. Do you have a particular area of interest? Are you particularly interested in Southeast Asia or Indonesia, or is your scope more broad than that geographically? I would say maritime Southeast Asia, and I consider that one of the most interesting parts, actually, to look at language and the way that it intersects with history, because there's so much going on. I would look at the Malay language and the Javanese language, two big ones, if you will, and see how these languages developed but also how, by looking at those languages, you get a different idea about the history of the region. Okay, so what kinds of different ideas? Generally, we don't think of linguistics when we first think of history. We often think of political history, or we think maybe of cultural history. And it seems to me that in history, language is something that we use to read texts, but we don't necessarily look at language and the development of language as a primary focus. So what kinds of things do you discover when you look at the intersection of linguistics and history? What sort of new perspectives come out? I think that's a very good depiction of indeed the uh, academic setting. You start learning a language, especially in Southeast Asia studies, you would learn Indonesian or maybe some other language. And then you start doing the real work, right? Then you start looking at something, the definitive goal of your research. And I would like to invert that logic by using the language as the topic of study. For example, when I first entered academia, we thought of Southeast Asia as this region, this, call it a palimpsest of different cultures, different layers of Hindu culture, and then Islam came in, and your Portuguese and Europeans and whatnot. And that was it. That was the story. And I was thinking, well, what's the evidence? And sometimes people um, fell silent real quickly, linguistics, language, offers some evidence, some tangible stuff of what people learned from each other, how people influenced each other. And it is almost quantifiable in that you have the evidence right in front of you in looking at the topics that people were interested in, that they were exchanging in terms of religion, in terms of products, in terms of ideas, in terms of people. It, it gives a detailed sort of in-depth dimension to this history that we know the earlier you get, the more intuitive it becomes almost because there's just uh, not too much written documented evidence. I wanted to ask about a particular work of yours that I quite like. You published a couple of years ago, which was looking at 101 etymologies of words in Malay, tracing them each of those words back and seeing how they had come into the Malay language. One of the big points that you were making in that paper is that we often assume that if something, if a word in, say, Malay 
or Javanese looks Indian, we assume it's coming from Sanskrit because that's the prestigious language, but you are finding something different. So could you elaborate a bit on that and what broader implication that has for our understanding of the development of Malay and Southeast Asian languages? I would like to say first that Sanskrit is important, but indeed not everything is Sanskrit. That is the dimension that we haven't really explored yet of Sanskrit by that time already at the first centuries AD wasn't a spoken language, or well, people spoke it, but it wasn't natively spoken. People didn't learn it on their mother's lap, so to speak. And there were other languages in the Indian subcontinent that people were speaking. Now, they might not necessarily have a name, but that doesn't mean they don't exist and even know their names sometimes. In Indology, you would then call it Prakrit, but that's a very broad umbrella term for everything that isn't Sanskrit almost. Linguistics would call it Middle Indo-Aryan, which is also obviously not a term that people themselves used. But I could see, based on the language history, the phonological shape of the words, that there weren't Sanskrit in any explainable sense. There were certain sound changes taking place that couldn't be explained through Sanskrit. There must be something else. It must have been the spoken language. And that prompted me to look at all of the things that didn't come from the big, well-known languages like Sanskrit, but also Arabic. There were so many influences that came from actual spoken vernaculars. So it sounds to me like what your work is doing is making more complex and finding the complexity in what was previously quite sort of broad brush explanations for cultural influence. So on the one hand, it's quite technical what you're doing. You're looking at sound changes and aspects of linguistic change that require a certain amount of expertise. But the implications are not just limited to linguistics. You're questioning some big assumptions about, for example, the influence of Sanskrit as the number one or the only influence from India on Southeast Asian languages. And I wonder if I could then tie that into the reason that you're here at the moment, because we've been talking about your general approach and some of the work you've done in the past, but you've come to Sydney in order to look at a particular collection or box of materials in the Fisher Library, which has a lot to do with your research too. So perhaps you could introduce or tell us about, a bit about those materials and maybe why you decided to come so far in order to look at them. I think what ties it together is who were the actual people behind the texts, the evidence that we have, and what can linguistics tell us about them, and what can my type of research say about where they were from, what were their regional origins, and how did they end up in Southeast Asia. And that is connected with the reason I'm here in Sydney. It has to do with a collection at the Fisher Library, which is called the Quay Collection, named after the person who brought it into this hemisphere. It comes from a well-known Chinese-Indonesian family, and it consists of about 85 envelopes of texts. When I first came here, I had no idea what was in there. It was a surprise, but it was also the thrill of opening the things and finding again something that was from a period in which I'm very interested, the 1930s, 1920s even, when Indonesia was slowly starting to become the country that it is today. What I found were a lot of religious texts about Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, which had to do with the fact that Indonesia's Chinese minority 
was trying to rediscover their roots, their Chineseness, and they were interested in their cultural heritage. And that took place against the backdrop of Dutch European imperialism, people feeling rightfully oppressed by the colonial system, and strengthening their ties to who they were, who their ancestors were. It wasn't just religious stuff that I found, it was also a lot of fiction. And fiction was very strong in this period because it was relatively easy for the colonial government to imprison people on the basis of what they said as journalists. But fiction is, of course, very multi-interpretable. So people use that. People writing in Malay, the lingua franca, they wrote a lot of fiction and it was about their position in the colony and how that needed to change. But if that happens under the guise of fiction, it becomes very difficult to do much about it. One of the things that happens a lot is that the people who collaborated with Europeans died. But of course, you can't really punish somebody for writing a story about that. So that was the background of it. What they also did is translate a lot. So there were Chinese classical tales, which they translated into Malay, because after a couple of generations, most of Indonesia's Chinese people spoke and read Malay much better than Chinese. Also European tales, and it opened their window into the wider world. So people residing on a city in Java, for example, had an idea of what was going on in elite European circles or in China. And I think that added a dimension of literacy, of being up to date with current affairs at that particular period in time, that people really needed. They wanted to be educated. The colonial system didn't do much for the education of people who weren't European or registered as such. And so they educated themselves. They did it through the press. And it must also be said that the Chinese uh, and also the Eurasians were spearheading in these developments because they themselves were groups that were caught between the racial configuration of colonialism in that they were neither the European elite or neither fully part of the European elite, but they were also quite different from the indigenous masses. At the same time, they had access to different cultures, different um, languages often. So that made them ideally situated to be part of this very vibrant printing industry that was changing the way that people saw themselves and their position in the wider world. You depicted quite a full image of this community at a particular moment in time, one where there's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm to respond to, as you say, the real strictures and oppression of being part of a colonial system, but also using and developing the resources available, the medium of print, the use of fiction as a political, a subtle political tool, as opposed to a more overt journalistic kind of resistance to the colonial state. I wonder how does the use of Malay or the distinctive use of Malay by these communities connect to some of those bigger social and political features of, of the community? Is there a special way that they use the lingua franca? There is, definitely. Malay being the lingua franca also meant that the Europeans, both in the British colonies and also in, in the so-called Dutch East Indies, 
were taking a, a piggyback right on the success of that language by publishing in it, because a lot of people could read it, whether one would be Javanese or Sundanese or Chinese or Arab or Eurasian, people generally read Malay. So it became a tool of power. The development that took place in these vernacular presses was that the hierarchy of Malay as a tool of colonialism was subverted. It also became a tool of resistance. And fiction was an important part of that, but also the actual journalists who sacrificed their lives and were put in concentration camps. And they used a, a type of Malay as well that was colloquial, but also by virtue of being a vernacular language, they were able to put things much more sharply than a language which had to be grammatically correct and which had to be standardized and which had to be poetical. On the question of standard Malay or standard Indonesian, I know that this is an issue that continues to be important in Indonesia. There's always a tension between the desire to have a perfected, formal, standard, correct register of Indonesian and to have power over that, to be able to use it properly. And on the other hand, the huge amount of colloquial, casual, imperfect, everyday uses of the language. It sounds to me like what you're seeing in your text is that the colloquial, everyday styles can be just as powerful, if not more powerful, in achieving certain political aims or certain aspirations, perhaps more broadly, to do with self-identity. So I wonder what your thoughts are about this question of how important is it to standardize and formalize and regularize a language, especially uh, a language of a developing nation or a, a newly emerging nation, versus the need to embrace the diversity of the ways people actually use language? I think it depends on who you are and what you want to do. So in order to create a popular culture that gives people the feeling that they are part of the same culture, the same sort of progressive, forward-looking culture that embraces different opinions and that embraces debate, you would need the spoken informal language. And you see that in other colonies as well. It happens a lot in the Caribbean region as well, where people use patois for specific purposes and the standard language for other purposes. Standardization is important if one is a bureaucrat and it is important for education to develop one's curricula and to give people the feeling that they all are part of an intellectual language. So I would say both play roles that are quite different, but they are part of the same phenomenon. You mentioned that these texts are from the community that you call either Sino-Malay, perhaps Chinese-Indonesian or Indonesians of Chinese descent. You mentioned how they existed at that time in the 20s and 30s in a sort of middle ground or intermediate state within the racial hierarchy of the Netherlands Indies. I wonder how the texts that you're looking at tell perhaps a different story about the history of Chinese communities in Indonesia that is less known about or less talked about in the common narratives about Indonesian nationalism at this time. I would say the difference would be that it's more about their culture and the way that they use language to express it. Whereas we have been obsessed in academia from colonial times onwards by the economic position of the Chinese. And that has to do very much with the way that in a lot of places in Southeast Asia, they were the economic backbone. So without a vibrant Chinese community, 
a European ruled city couldn't thrive. The reason that these Chinese Malay sources have been given relatively minimal attention is because they weren't really collected as part of the colonial knowledge gathering projects. So these texts that can be found in Sydney, quite a lot of them are unique and you wouldn't be able to find them in any other library in the world or sometimes only in one, but then it would be a microfilm, whereas here the original would be present. And I think that's really important to understand that it was a vibrant printing culture, but it wasn't ever part of the top-down academic study of what Indonesian history was supposed to be like. On the other hand, as we know, historians reinvent themselves every generation. So this generation might be different and people might actually look at it and obtain additional insights into this history that might say something about what we find important right now. Following on from that question of how historians of each generation will look to issues that they care about and look for questions in history that speak to those concerns, given in the broadest sense the political landscape or the cultural landscape in Indonesia today, speaking very broadly, How do you think the sort of findings or the sort of research into this community or this sort of world of the 1920s and 30s, what does that research have to say to some of the questions we ask ourselves today about who is part of the Indonesian nation? What are the histories of the different ethnic and racial and religious groups in Indonesia? Firstly, I wouldn't be sitting here and doing this research if nobody in Indonesia cared about it. So I've spoken with a lot of people of Chinese ancestry, and they are currently really interested in these roots, which under previous governments were really difficult to explore because assimilation was the key word. But at the moment, there's really a lot of infrastructure to be able to explore these roots. There are local library initiatives that would allow young people to go and have a look at this type of material. So it seems there is a renewed interest in precisely the position of the community within the nation, and in a way that corresponds with the feelings that people were having about a century ago, about who are we and what is our future going to be like in this archipelago. One of the other things that people told me a lot is that their families had a hard time getting accepted in the Indonesian fabric of the nation. The moment they would express that they feel they are Indonesians and their place in the world is in Indonesia, People would ask, but what are your contributions to the nation? What have you contributed? And for that reason, there really is a big emphasis on this discourse of contributing to Indonesia, who are our national heroes. What have they done against the colonial regime? What have Chinese Indonesians done to support the Indonesian independence movement? What have they contributed to the Malay language? to Indonesian cuisine, to art, and all of these tangible cultural objects. So my research also speaks to that type of discourse in that it retrieves some of the information that has gone lost because Indonesia doesn't have the perfect climate to maintain or to preserve this type of material. In my opinion, digitization is going to be very crucial in the future. So we are talking about knowledge that has gone lost but it still exists in places with a slightly better infrastructure in terms of libraries. I think in terms of where we're heading, the world is, of course, getting much more interconnected. 
and we should probably want to benefit from this momentum to work together as well with academics, but also especially the community in trying to make sure that information becomes available. It sounds to me like both the things that we talked about at first regarding your linguistic research and looking into the linguistic contributions to Malay from all these different cultures as you track them through how language changes and how loan words get absorbed into Malay. And then what we talked about after concerning the broader cultural contributions, the evidence for which you find in these boxes in Fisher, they're part of the same story in a way. The question is how to get an understanding and paint a picture of how whole range of different communities have contributed to Indonesia, but not just Indonesia, because of course we're talking about a period of time before the Republic of Indonesia existed. So although it may be framed in a nationalist discourse today, that doesn't necessarily reflect past reality. But this concept of contribution, I think, is one that's really valuable, perhaps more valuable than questions of influence or civilization or some of these more power-oriented ideas that seem to have been important in an earlier generation of scholarship. And you mentioned the importance of looking forward in terms of the opportunities that we now have with new infrastructure and technology to talk about those contributions, those historical contributions in a different way. And so to conclude, I'd like to ask you what sorts of projects and initiatives you think are valuable for people to explore, to learn about, or even to contribute to in terms of gaining new perspectives into how different peoples have contributed to Indonesian life today and Southeast Asian life in general? I would say any initiative that allows us to keep having these discussions and to keep challenging the hegemonic narratives. And so in colonial times, there was a stereotype about Indonesia in particular and Southeast Asia in general as being a rather passive recipient region of higher civilizations. That was the colonial European discourse, but it was also appropriated by scholars from India who would then say, we were able to be colonizers, or we were able to become colonizers in the past, and therefore we are a great nation that deserves their independence. And in the period afterwards, which was the period of nation building, that logic got challenged by the historians of the nation who minimized all of these foreign influences for precisely the same power-oriented discourse, which was that very little came from the outside and we were always the legitimate people within these particular territorial boundaries. And I think every generation will have to find their balance between these two extremes and think about what the actual people find interesting. Because I think it's the people that need to live together and that would need to share the same spaces. And therefore, the discourse of contributions, I think, really works in an Indonesian context. Because you would avoid saying people have been civilized by external forces, but you would also avoid saying certain people don't belong here as part of the nation state. And in order to talk about that sensibly, I think a knowledge of language and linguistics can really help giving concrete evidence of what these contributions consisted of. The challenge then would be to really make sure that people understand it, and that would mean in the case of linguists to avoid really difficult jargon that would put people off. And I think in the broader academic community, 
it would also be very useful to look beyond one's specific discipline and see what other people are talking about. I would say in Indonesia, this is already happening. So in that regard, I think they're slightly ahead in tackling this specific problem. It should be crucial for all academics working on Indonesia to be up to date with the latest developments of Indonesian intellectuals. It seems like a logical thing to say, but unfortunately I must notice that it doesn't always happen yet. That would be a final objective to move towards. It sounds like from the work that you're doing, you're moving towards a particular way of looking at or doing academia, doing history, studying language, that is concerned with how different communities and peoples in the region, in Indonesia, can benefit from that kind of learning. Not in the sense of how do you build a nation, which, as you mentioned, was the concern of the previous generation of scholars, not concerned with how you can justify particular political stances or political aims, such as decolonization or imperialism, but one which seeks to show through the lens of contribution how society has come to be the way it is and to understand fairly the diversity that exists in that society on a more profound level than just saying we're diverse and that's really good, but actually looking at the historical development and asking what it means to be diverse in a particular community. So for that, I'd like to say thank you for coming to visit us in Sydney. Uh, Thank you for your work on the archives in Fisher. I think that we've learned a lot about different ways that quite specific and technical studies, the studies of language, the study of manuscripts, boxes of old papers that people haven't seen for a long time, can really have implications far beyond those specific studies and that can tell us a great deal about not only the cultures of the past and how people saw themselves and felt and acted, but how those issues remain relevant today. Thank you, Tom, for visiting Sydney once again. I hope to hear a lot more about your work in the future. Thank you too, Jara. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.